there's a different liability when the buck truly stops where you are, right? Like, so when you're, when you are the last line of defense, when the lie, when you're solely holding the liability, uh, that's a different way of, of being in the world. Welcome to Pro Tradecraft's Career Toolbox. I'm Fernando Pajes, and I'm here to help you turn your day job into a career. Today, we have a treat. We have a very interesting guest with a most interesting career path. I know you're going to draw inspiration from her journey. It involves both climbing the career ladder and blending this professional ascent with her life's mission as a humanitarian, giving back to society and to our industry. Dee Bailey is a highly respected woman in the remodeling industry who has held a hammer and run the company. All the while, she's been finding ways to help others, women and men, to grow in their construction careers and to gain the life skills needed to succeed in any industry. I like this interview particularly because it clearly illustrates that there are many paths in the trades, as many paths as there are in life. If being a carpenter, roofer, or contractor does not fit the image that you have for yourself, never fear. You can mold your career to your most personal aspirations, financial and as a human being. Construction affords creativity, freedom, physicality, the self-satisfaction of seeing your hours turn into something tangible every single day. And it's a pleasure and a benefit that should be shared by all, men and women included. We have a labor shortage today, yet even as women are excelling in so many industries, the construction industry lags. Our guest, Dee Bailey, tells us how this can change and why it must. Dee, it's such a pleasure to add your voice to the Pro Tradecraft Career Toolbox. Wow, well, thanks for that. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here today. You started as a carpenter, I understand. How old were you when you started working as a carpenter? I actually started when I was very young. Uh, I was the youngest of three girls, and my father needed to build a lake house. <laughs> the other two just really didn't weren't interested. So I was really six years old when I picked up my first hammer. Um, huh. As a career, uh, I wanted to make some money during college, and that was actually the easiest money to make, um, and it fit with my lifestyle. So how so? Uh, how did it fit with your lifestyle? Uh, well, I was, I'm active um, at the time. I played rugby. So um, carpentry worked really well in that, you know, I think there's a lot of reasons that other people go into carpentry. You get to use your hands. You don't have to dress up. You get to be active. You get to use your body. And I think it's a lot of the same things, what appeals to people about being in the trades to begin with. Now, perhaps just because I'm showing my my. Uh my male brain at work here, but I'm assuming you were a Finnish carpenter. Oh, absolutely not. Uh, framing as well as finish. And, you, you know, that's, um, that's definitely one of the things about remodeling is you have to know a little bit about a lot of things, uh, but you don't have really the luxury of saying you're going to be a framer and you're going to be a Finnish person. Were there other women in the crew? You know, I had a very unique and fortunate um, experience that I had two female bosses uh, when I was young. One was a painter. She owned a painting company, and she gave me kind of my first toe in for a real job into the construction industry. And she had hired two other women painters. And then uh, my next big break is uh, when I joined Harold Remodeling. And um, the owner of that company, Iris Harold, uh, 
definitely was open to hiring women and, in fact, really wanted to have women on her crews. So I had a very unique um, uh, toe into the industry, for sure. Now, you eventually became president of Harold Remodeling. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it was an exciting time for the company. Back in the early 90s, we had a winning formula. We were in Silicon Valley and we were poised for growth. Now, you said that she had certain core values. That's what was helping Harrow remodeling to grow. What were those values and how were they different than you know other companies? Yeah, you know, um, she definitely wanted this to be a full service company. The emphasis on service, our tagline, I'm not sure when we actually came up with this, but our tagline is now uh, we want to be your contractor for life. And so that means a relationship. You know, that Mm -hmm. means um, really understanding what's important. Usually there's two owners of a home. So it's important to know what's important to both owners. The husband and the wife was typically the way that that was set up. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of contractors who are male tend to uh, only engage with the male of the couple. And in fact, and especially back in the 90s and more women were home. They were actually managing the job. They were on the day-to-day. It was so necessary to figure out how to speak to the person who's actually in front of you. Mm -hmm. And um, it's not always a woman, but certainly the majority of the time back then. And I I think that's how that plays in to how her unique experience crafted and and, um, molded this company in that way. Also, just her personally, she takes great pride in her um, professionalism in her integrity. Uh, she likes to have fun. She so believes in teamwork. Now, we were chatting a little bit before uh, we before I pressed record, and we actually began this interview formally. And you're very personable. And I'm wondering, uh, you know, you, you referred to the ability to engage, you know, who's in front of you. In other words, uh, that aspect uh, that has to do with uh, building relationships and, and, uh, and initiating them, you know, knowing how to, how to talk with people. How important... Uh, do you consider that, and how how important is that in terms of uh, in terms of the business? How important is that to be able to really uh, engage people and build relationships? Yeah, absolutely. That's a it's a great question. I think it's most of it. I, I know that not a lot of business owners want to hear this. In that, when you're looking at money and bottom line, and what motivates your company, and and why why your business even exists, you know, of course we have to have money, and of course that is part of it. But honestly, I think that it relationships is truly the motivating factor and your ability to communicate, right? And uh, nurture those relationships and uh, go through the hard times as well as the fun times, you know, and, and, and you mm-hmm. bring it back to remodeling, right? Like you bring it back to how do you communicate with these clients and how do you serve your clients um, by shepherding them through this process, So if they're upset, you have to be able to listen and and understand their feelings and also provide a solution instead of just reacting. Reacting to the problem. That's right. That's right. Now you bring up, you've used the word service a lot. There is the concept of the servant uh, leader, you know, leadership as service, which is different than the, you know, heroic leader like Alexander the Great that commands the armies. And (laughs) did you, as a leader in terms of, now you became president of the company. Uh, you've become a leader. Did you apply that service um, philo- philosophy of service to your employees and to the people you were leading to? Yeah, you know, um, 
I, I wanted to also just uh, paint an accurate picture. Uh, my time at president was very short uh, because uh, Iris and I decided to go separate ways. So and I think you, that left, I, you left Herald Remodeling to create your own company. Is yeah, that right? I, that's okay. correct. I actually actually bought uh, an existing company first and then uh, eventually created my own company. But I really love that question. And I want to get back to types of leadership and how service uh, works with that. I think that's very crucial and important. Um, and I, I think that I learned or am still learning. I think that I have been molded and shaped during those times away from Harold about what kind of leader I am and how I want to, it's just how I want to contribute. I think the, it's Lao Tzu who, who said that a leader, a great leader is one that when their work is done and their aim fulfilled, they will say, we did it ourselves. You know, and that kind of sums up how I think I can contribute if I can do it in a way that, or if I can lead in a way that allows people to be their best self mm-hmm. and recognize their own growth and also find their own desire and hunger of what motivates them, then I will feel like my aim is fulfilled. Lead them to self-fulfillment. You got it. So that in the end they say, look what I did. So what was the difference in uh, working for yourself versus working for someone else? Because even as president, you're still working for somebody else. And now you went off on your own. What did you learn? Yeah. You know, and, and life's lessons are sometimes very painful and hard uh, and, and difficult. And those are the ones where you learn the most sometimes. There is definitely what I missed the most. I guess it was better to, to, to answer that question. What I missed the most was having a, a team to be mm-hmm. a part of. And it is definitely a different place when you are, you're solely responsible for the decisions of your business. There's a certain burden that you go to sleep with at night when you're mm-hmm. thinking about, oh, you know, is it going to rain and is the roof covered up? Do I have enough work so that my apprentice carpenter can really, you know, work the next six months that I promised her that she would be able to? Did I really get that estimate? Did I read that plumber's estimate correctly? Or am I liable for another 10 grand or something? You know, like all of those things hit you in a way when you are holding uh, you know, the buck stops there. So that was definitely eye-opening. And uh, I grew a lot when I was faced with those challenges. And you have to dig deep. You have to dig deep into your own inner faith of who you are and, and why you do what you do. When it's your skin that's at risk. <laughs> that's right. I guess the bottom line. I love that okay. you said, you know, you 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 acknowledge the hard times because in um, you typically in a business interview, the business person only wants to talk about the uh, the successes. You know, which makes which paints a picture of like you just get started and there's like one success after another success and it's all glory. But, you know, often between successes, there are some long periods of not necessarily failure, just kind of hard work. Yeah, (laughs) far from it. I I agree. And, you know, I go back. It it really does work to use remodeling as an analogy. You start with this getting everyone very happy and jazzed about this vision that you're painting and the designer is helping the client shepherd them through that and guide them through that. And 
you know, the first thing we do is come in and demo your house and mm-hmm. make a lot of dust and a lot of noise. Then you kind of build them back up for excitement. And then there's sheetrock and there's sheetrock dust. And, you know, so there's ebbs and flows of the project. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's kind of the same thing with the business. If you're building a business, um, there's going to be times when you're ecstatic and everything aligns and everything is beautiful and it's coming to fruition. And, you know, it could be the very next day that you're hit with something that you didn't even think about. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's how you get through it. You mentioned earlier uh, giving back, uh, something that you were keenly interested in. You have a philanthropic side. I know that looking at your website and seeing the the work that the company does in terms of uh, the social uh, contributions and all of that. And and you worked with a nonprofit. Uh, That's a big change. Tell us about your experience with Habitat for Humanity. Yeah, I would love to. I knew about them for a while and it just personally, it resonated with me about how could my career and my desire to give back, how could they come together? And this seemed like a really great organization for me to work in. So I worked in it personally and then I actually got HRI to participate in a blitz build. We sponsored a home and we had some of our employees go out and and work on the site for a week. And then after I left Harold, uh, the Silicon Valley affiliate uh, approached me uh, because they were going to do their first women's build. Hmm. And um, we ended up building a single family home, 90% participation from women volunteers, which was pretty incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, and I stayed on for a few years after that, uh, helping that affiliate uh kind of just deepen their reach and and understand their structure a bit. So it was a very good experience for me, for sure. I'm curious, uh, from that uh, first women's build in Silicon Valley, did any of those women that volunteered then take off in the trade? You know, I don't know, but I hope so. Um, The very first volunteer crew that I had on site was a group of Girl Scouts. And... um, the very first thing I made them do was move the porta potty from one side of the lot to the other. And then the next thing I had them do was actually start build, uh, digging a foundation. And the best um, feedback I ever got was this young gal. I guess she was probably a junior in high school. And she looked at me and she said, I'm taking a photo of myself and I'm putting it on my bulletin board. And when I finish my college exams, you know, when my when I'm writing my college applications, this is going to be my motivating factor. I I don't want to be digging ditches for the rest of my life. Um, oh, that, that that's wonderful. <laughs> uh, but I think that I also we definitely met a lot of women that were interested. I didn't keep up with all of them. Um, I'm hoping that the gal that was digging trenches is an engineer somewhere. You know, uh, my hope for her is that maybe she wanted to be an architect. Designing uh, use, yeah, yeah. You know, she wanted to use her brains and understand and appreciate uh, the brawn aspect mm-hmm. of it. Right. So uh, there are well, a lot of different ways of being in the construction industry, not always uh, getting bags on and hands dirty. That's one of the points I want to make on this. Uh, <laughs> the, the reason for this podcast is to show there's a lot of different paths. As many paths as there are in life, there are through the construction industry. And I love that yes. you're, you're using remodeling and all as an analogy of something that begins with an idea, then requires tearing things up uh, to rebuild. 
you know, yes. a, there's a kind of a rebirth involved now. And, 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 uh, and, and I like the idea of inspiring not only uh, women in the trades as a career, but heck, women in to, to, to retile their own bathrooms, <laughs> you know, to, really? to uh, take up the tools and, and do some of that home improvement. So or how about uh, how about just being able to again with some confidence and competence to direct the people that they hire? I think that that's uh, an important part. I apologize for the next question, but I got to know: in your role as boss lady, do you approach leadership with men and women differently? <laughs> that you ask the question that way um, is uh, very tied up into my answer. You know, I uh, I give everybody a lot of space uh, to be themselves, and and that's part of it. Actually, lady isn't my favorite uh, term, uh, but I also certainly accept that it that it works for a lot of people. And and to answer your question honestly, whether I approach uh, men and women differently, it it's no and yes. My best approach is to see each person as a human adult especially someone who I am leading or someone who has employee, uh, they're my employee. I want to see them as someone who needs something from me. And I want to see them as a person who can contribute their talents. And that's the, you know, that's ideal. That's the best way is to just see them as a human. Ideally, I'll respond in the way that's most effective to what they can hear from me. And that's based on how they see me. Right. So if they see me now, I'm kind of an old lady. You know, if you want to say boss lady, I'm, I'm the old lady. Uh, I'm in my mid 50s. So there's an age component to that. My biological sex, they see me as a female. Um, they're going to come to me with their own expectation of what that means. Mm-hmm. Right. And how I approach them with the choice of words that I use. The onus is on me to read them and to and to work with them effectively. So if a woman approaches me, so in, again, your your question is, when I do I approach leadership with men and women differently? Ideally, I don't want to. And yes, practically, I have to because they're bringing their own unique experience and I'm responding to that. You're back at Harold now, right? You've, yes. You were away for how many years? 17. <laughs> 17 years. And, and how, yeah. when did you when did you come back? I understand it was recently. Uh, I spent about a year and a half. You've been you've been back about a year and a half. You're no you're not the president though. Nope. How have things changed at the company? The main change uh, is that we are now a 100% employee-owned company. When Iris Harrell, the founder, decided that she needed to make some arrangements for when she retired and when she moved on. We started way back when investigating the option of an employee stock ownership plan. And for, for people that don't, that it's, not, um, it's not very common and most people don't know what that means. Uh, it's a benefit plan that gives workers ownership interest in the company. And it also gives the selling shareholder and participants, um, they, they both receive tax benefits. So it makes it a qualified plan. The NCEO, which is the National Center for Employee Ownership, they're mm-hmm. a great resource if this sparks any interest for anyone else, especially for smaller companies. And you do have a retiring owner. Um, I think it's a great plan. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think it's a great way to uh, at least create the opportunity for a legacy. 
Um, mm. and, and, and to also, in my opinion, reward the people that helped you build the company mm-hmm. with the opportunity to build something else. So that's the biggest thing is that uh, Iris retired. Uh, the company didn't fall apart. They absolutely, in fact, they, uh, they have thrived. And we just last year paid off uh, all of our debt. Uh, and that's a big, that was a big accomplishment. So it's an exciting time uh, to see where this company is gonna go in its next chapter. And, and that was part of the draw of why I have returned. And, and the, the folks working at Harold, has their attitude changed or how has it empowered them to be owners? That's a great question. And that's the one that we actually are asking ourselves and, and, and also um, uh, very diligently working towards. Uh, I think that there, so, so the success of an ESOP is certainly uh, based on how willing uh, the company is to educate. And um, we have a ESOP culture committee. Uh, and ESOP and- is? ESOP, again, is Employee Stock Ownership Plan. Okay. So we have a culture committee. A culture committee? Yeah, it's a way to identify ourselves and to a different way to think about ourselves. So we have employee owners, right? We don't just have employees. We have employee owners. So technically, they actually have a, a, you know, they get stock. There's a certificate of stock, and we look at the value of that stock each year and it's the cultural aspect of how does that change? You know, your question um, mm-hmm. is an evolving one. We, I don't have a canned answer. It's, mm-hmm. it's certainly part of the process and part of the journey of how can it affect and how, how can it uh, improve and, and also really have this company be a legacy company. You know, I was recently at a conference in Whirlpool, I think, was um, celebrating 100 years. And like, what an audacious goal to think of a small remodeling company that would last for a hundred years. For hundred you know, years. thinks that way, right? But, but passed, passed all the warranties. <laughs> but passed all the warranties. That's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. Um, you know, and we're there. We're, we're, we're approaching 35 years of existence. Mm-hmm. And so we're remodeling remodels that we did, right? So think about that. Yeah. Um, and it's the steps, you know, it's the steps of if you're a small company, if you're listening right now and you're a, a owner of a sole proprietorship, you know, you don't have to think about a hundred year old company. But uh, what would that do if you had a solid growth plan for your company for the next 25 years? And then mm-hmm. you actually had someone in place to um, to continue what you are building, what you're working so hard for. Mm-hmm. It's not for everyone, but I think it's a very interesting and um, intriguing alternative for some. I guess it would take folks a little while to kind of let that settle in and understand themselves as owners as you give them the stock option and but you know they report to work it's the same office it's the same people it's the same job maybe it takes them a little while to kind of come to terms with it and realize hey I'm an owner here. Yeah yeah you're you're spot on uh it it does take time and some of them won't ever get it you know as I said uh some of them won't, they'll just see it as a money bottom line thing of, oh, this is how much money I'm going to be getting if I make it through to retirement. So you have to be vested a certain, we have a vesting schedule and it's not the same as, you know, I'm in, we're in Silicon Valley. And so there are startups and dreams of overnight millionaires and stock mm-hmm. options, you know, the big companies that are in our backyard, Facebook and Google and Twitter, you know, all of these companies are 
we're in this in the midst of this churning of stock and value. It's not that at all. Uh, there's certainly some money uh, attached to it. But the thing that intrigues me is really um, uh, taking ownership of, of yourself and how you contribute back to the organization that you're a part of. Now, what are you doing today to encourage more women in construction? What advice can you give any that might be listening on what it takes to succeed in this mainly male industry? To be honest, I'm formulating a plan. <laughs> um, I am working with a realtor, a local realtor, who has um, been holding like quarterly events. You know, for her, she said, hey, Dee, you know, I really wish I, I knew a, a female plumber or a female, a female electrician mm. or... I think it would be really cool if I could refer these, you know. And so she, on her own, has has started, um, you know, reaching out to the community to say, hey, do you have any women business owners that want to be part of this group? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's just a start, right? And there are some other small local groups that are, again, kind of going the do-it-yourself route of, hey, gals who are out there and want to uh, learn and want to try this out. We're getting together to do Again, some some charitable work, building tiny houses for for different folks. But the most exciting thing I've done is uh, just recently came back from the Women in Residential Construction Conference, sponsored by a professional builder and professional remodeler. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, this is like their fifth year of of doing this event, and I was on a panel with three other just dynamic, uh, amazing women, and we have committed to uh, working together throughout the year to see where this can go and what we can do uh, again, to give back to an industry that really works for us. That's really given to us. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's exciting times, you know, uh, I mentioned I'm, I'm in my mid fifties. Uh, it was very inspiring to see the 20 year olds and the 30 year olds and hear them. There's a fierceness and a um, desire and uh, no holds barred, not going to let objections get in their way kind of attitude mm-hmm. that's very infectious and fun to be around. And also uh, bringing it back to um, to Harold. I'm working with the general manager. She certainly has um, uh, has said to me, hey, you know, can we work together? How can we partner together to make sure that Harold is still a place that's safe and inviting and welcoming of women? What are we doing to encourage um, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. this legacy that this company actually really holds. You, you, you mentioned uh, that the women that you were, uh, the young women that you were working with at this uh, Women in Construction Conference had kind of a fierce determination. I think you described it somewhat like that. <laughs> is that necessary? Is that, is that like uh, you got to have that fierce determination? Here's the thing, Fernando. You know, uh, when I started, I think that the numbers that people said was maybe three Four, three or four percent of the whole industry um, was women, mm-hmm. and that included architects and engineers and designers and salespeople and um, and business owners. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, just last month, the numbers they just haven't improved. We're at nine point nine percent of the industry, and that includes engineers and architects and salespeople and designers. True. So, when you look at the world, and you look at our industry, we're way out of balance. We have been forever, and there's a lot of work to be done. I think this is a really important point. The industry will improve when it reflects something closer to the population of the real world. When you bring women into the industry, 
you know, all of those things that we talked about before, about engaging and communicating and effectively service, you know, your, your service to your client, it can only get better. And, and I think there's a fierceness that's needed to tackle the challenge of those numbers. Having worked in the construction industry most of my life, and, uh, and when, when, of course, when I was uh, young and actually swinging a hammer, uh, I don't remember any women on the crew. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, later I, I've, I've met one or two, you know, along the way and later on. Um, it, it's a very, I mean, from from even now, because I, I'm working, uh, you know, now as a, as a, as a home builder and uh, I see my subcontractors and all, like maybe one or two women on the whole process from beginning to end will show up on the job and usually in painting or one of those trades. Uh, I, I wonder, you know, it, it still is very much a male world and the way men interact on the job site, the way they speak to one another and the way they, you know, the, the, it, it's, it's still very much uh, you know, kind of a male environment. And I, I imagine a, a young woman coming into that environment, likely the only one. Luckily, maybe there's two on the crew. Mm-hmm. What advice do you give, not the women, but the males in the industry on how to work with those new women in the crew? Right. This is such an important question. And and it and it sounds like, you know, from you speaking, that your experience um, validates those numbers, right? Three or four percent or mm-hmm. at best nine percent. So the only way to really change the industry is that we have to have allies amongst the men in the industry. They have to understand why it's worth their effort. But my best advice is be very aware of how you present yourself to this human in front of you. You know, we're going back Mm -hmm. to that same question. Mm -hmm. Be very aware of who you are and the lens that you see this human in front of you. Be professional, you know, however you treat a man who's walking in front of you for the first time. And and, and again, it's kind of how you're viewing them. If you think that they have something to contribute to you or to to help you, like so if it's a subcontractor and you've never met him before, um, you're going to kind of be on your best behavior and you're going to be professional and you're going to state your needs really clearly to him. Mm-hmm. And you're going to expect that he has confidence and competence and that he's going to give you expertise, right? So don't question. Uh, I mean, I think that some people get caught up in, oh, is does she know? You know, she mm-hmm. sees a woman, you see a woman. But in, in, in all fairness, you know, I'm, I'm really trying to state this in a way that's the most gracious way, you know, because fighting the fight, some of us, you know, we do get resentful and we do, we're just tired. Yeah, <laughs> we're tired. tired of, <laughs> we're tired of the, of the nonsense, you know, but be professional, give them the same common courtesy that you would any man that's walking on your job site. You know, the bottom line is we all have biases. I have biases against males. I have biases against uh, plumbers. I have biases, <laughs> you know, um, and I love my plumbers. I do, but uh, it, So if you don't, so here's another really great place to start. If you don't think you have a bias, then you need, you absolutely have some homework to do because I promise you, you do. You can't live in this world 
and not have some preconceived notion of what a woman does and what they can't do and how they dress and how they appear and how, you know, look at how you were, you're raised, you know, look at your parents, look at your schooling, look at your faith, look at the literature that you read and the television programs that you watch and your opinions about women are formulated in those, in, in all of that, right. In all of your experience. And I think the facts are pretty, are out there, you know, do your research, but women typically are um, expected to follow they're expected to um, not have uh, the competency of years of trade experience. Is that resonating at all in, in, to answering your question? Is that making sense? It makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense. And I think what you've proved, Dee, in this interview is that women know. <laughs> I think you've, I think you've, I think you've proven the fact, and uh, and, and and I've learned from the conversation with you too, the, and, and I think I, I hope that uh, many people do listen and and, uh, and and learn. Well, that left me with a lot to think about. Hope it left you with a few things to think about too. By way of wrap up, I guess uh, this week's homework is to look inward, look at how you see people and what you expect of them. Do you expect competence or incompetence when you see a woman on the job site? What about a man who's wearing nail bags? Do you automatically expect competence? You might not think about it, but consider this. Do you feel threatened by a new guy on the job? If you do, you're probably threatened by his potential ability to outshine you. In other words, you expect competence. He's a man. If you smirk, Maybe dismiss or demean the new gal on the job site. Maybe you're patronizing. You expect incompetence. You've got some more inward looking to do. The first part of overcoming a bias is to discover it in yourself. You don't necessarily have to share it or confess, but just be honest with your inward looking. You'll find a lot you can improve on. I know I have, even today. Career Toolbox is a production of SGC Horizon Media Network. I'm your host, Fernando Pajes, and the show is produced by Dan Morrison.